Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Delker Erdensina, a reporter with Inside Climate News, who profiles some of the young climate activists who came to the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow to make their voices heard. Lisa Graves, Executive Director of True North Research, who talks about her efforts to hold Louis DeJoy accountable for his mismanagement of the U.S. Postal Service while urging President Biden to fire him. And Aaron Greenberg of the group Libraries Without Borders, who discusses the work his group does to provide underserved communities access to the Internet to connect them with employment, training, and education. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. One year after 196 nations around the world signed the Paris Climate Accord, the Southeast Asian nation of Malaysia reported to the United Nations that its trees had absorbed carbon four times faster than neighboring Indonesia. As a result, it wrote off 242 million tons of carbon dioxide from its 2016 carbon inventory, or three-quarters of its total emissions. A Washington Post investigation found that many countries underreport their greenhouse gas emissions to the UN, a disturbing fact that calls into question the credibility of commitments made at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. The post-examination of 196 country reports reveals a giant gap between what nations declare their emissions to be versus the greenhouse gases they are sending into the atmosphere. The gap ranges from at least 8.5 billion tons to as high as 13.3 billion tons a year of underreported emissions, big enough to move the needle on the severity of our planet's climate crisis. Many problems causing the gap in emissions statistics stem from the UN reporting system. Developed nations have one set of standards, while developing countries have another, with wide latitude to decide how, what, and when they report. Developed nations are historically responsible for most of the greenhouse gases that have built up in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution, and they have greater technical capacity to analyze their emissions than poorer nations. Thirty years after a ceasefire was signed, fighting has erupted in the Western Sahara between the government of Morocco and rebels from the Polisario Front that seeks independence for Western Sahara. In the last year, there have been over 1,000 clashes between the rival forces, mostly artillery duels across a 1,700-mile wall of sand or berm built by the Moroccan army and sewn with mines. Polisario commanders say a dozen of their soldiers and as many civilians have been killed. Morocco officially denies that the war has resumed. According to The Economist magazine, renewed fighting has ratcheted up a rivalry between Morocco and its neighbor Algeria, which backs the Sahrawi rebels. In August, Algeria cut off diplomatic relations with Morocco's King Mohammed VI and shut down the supply of natural gas via a European pipeline. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has rescinded Donald Trump's recognition of Morocco's rule over the Western Sahara. 
the United Nations Security Council voted to extend the UN peacekeeping mission in the disputed Western Sahara for one year, expressing concern about the breakdown of the 1991 ceasefire between Morocco and the Palisario Front. Twenty years after America's Civil War, black families near Shiloh, Alabama, had owned hundreds of acres of farmland, harvesting ribbon cane, corn, and peas. In the early 1980s, descendants of these black farmers had their applications for federal loans rejected by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A representative of the Federal Farm Service Agency, or FSA, told black families they would have to wait until qualified white families received their loans first. According to The Nation magazine, federal agencies have released multiple reports since the 1960s acknowledging widespread discrimination against African-American farmers. For decades, these farmers were blocked from accessing federal farm subsidies, which thrust many black farm owners into debt, giving wealthier white farmers the opportunity to buy up productive farmland cheap. In 1920, there were a million black farmers, 14% of all American farmers. By 1997, blacks only owned 2% of the nation's farmland, and ownership of black farms continues to decline. Even Joe Biden's $4 billion in coronavirus debt relief allocated specifically for disadvantaged farmers failed to help many black farmers because the program only offered debt cancellation to farmers who had outstanding USDA loans, the very same loans that black farmers have been systematically denied for decades. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After two weeks of deliberations, speeches, and massive protests, representatives of nearly 200 nations at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow hammered out an agreement that for the first time targeted fossil fuels as the key driver of global warming, even as several governments watered down the final text on the need to phase out the use of coal. While the agreement resolved rules around carbon markets, it did little to ease the frustration of countries who push for long-promised climate financing from wealthier nations. Other commitments made in Glasgow included a U.S.-EU-led pledge by over 100 countries to slash methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030, and 100 world leaders promised to end deforestation by 2030. These and other steps were taken in an attempt to honor the Paris Climate Agreement's goal of keeping the rise in global temperatures below 1.5 degrees centigrade of pre-industrial levels. At the conclusion of the conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that the commitments made in Glasgow were not enough, asserting that our fragile planet is hanging by a thread. Bill McKibben, a founder of the global climate group 350.org, observed that to the extent there was any progress in Glasgow, it was thanks to the perseverance and creativity of young climate activists. Your reporter spoke with Delgar Erdensina, a reporter with Inside Climate News, who profiles some of the young activists who came to Glasgow 
to make their voices heard. We thought it was really important to talk with people from all over the world because this is a global issue and we wanted to have people, you know, give their perspective, people coming from both developing and developed countries from regions of the world that are experiencing different kinds of climate impacts. Um, And so everyone brought a different perspective to the story, but I think there are also a lot that they had in common. Like, you know, a lot of these young people have just made huge sacrifices to dedicate their whole lives, basically, to the climate movement. You know, I talked to this one guy, John Bonifacio from the Philippines, who was in medical school when he first started, like, learning about climate change and when he realized, when he saw what was happening in the Philippines and realized you know, if it's this bad already with like more intense cyclones and typhoons hitting the country and sea level rise starting to happen, like, you know, I think a lot of young people like him have just within their own short lifetime seen a lot of climate change happen already. And if that's happened just in the past 10, 20 years, they're looking at the rest of their lives and going like, oh my God, how much worse is going to happen, you know? And so John, he dropped out of medical school to become a climate activist full time. Um, And so did this young activist from Russia that I talked to. He was a very promising, like young violinist. He was planning to go abroad, perform internationally. But yeah, they've all just thought that this is such an important issue that they sort of don't have a choice but to dedicate themselves to working on it. So I talked to one activist, Melinda Moses, who lives in Uganda. His path to climate activism was sort of, he was a college student and he was traveling around the country. And he, in 2018, he traveled to a region of Uganda called the Duda, which had had these massive floods and landslides um, because rainfall in the region is becoming just so much more unpredictable because of climate change. You know, they'll have these long periods of drought followed by short but really intense rainstorms and so while he was traveling he met this young teenager who had lost both of her parents to floods and landslides and she was sort of left on her own to care for her younger siblings by herself and you know a lot of these activists have stories like that of seeing other young people in their countries affected in these really immediate ways already. Delgar, I thought it might be instructive for our audience to briefly summarize what came out of COP26, what came out of the UN Climate Summit in Scotland, given there was a lot of frustration among uh, the activists there on decades of meetings of these international representatives that really haven't made much headway at all in terms of uh, binding goals to limit greenhouse gases and carbon emissions and the uh, production and use of fossil fuels. From your point of view, as you followed events in Scotland, what was and was not accomplished there? To be honest, I don't think there was a whole lot in the agreement they reached that's that new. And, you know, the point of these COP meetings every year and the agreements that come out of them is really to implement what countries already agreed to, especially in 2015 with the big Paris Climate Agreement. And like the overarching goal of that is to keep global warming to less than, you know, two degrees Celsius and ideally to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And in order to do that, most experts agree, you know, we have to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and cut them completely by 2050. And that's sort of the big goal that these young activists are laser focused on. 
yeah, I think as a whole, they were pretty disappointed with the agreement that came out of COP26. You know, the agreement only included some very weak language on fossil fuels. They said, you know, we need to phase down our use of coal, um, not phase it out completely. So that means countries will still continue to use coal, which is the most polluting fossil fuel for some years to come. Um, young activists were also calling for compensation for the losses and damages that developing countries have already suffered as a result of climate change. And this agreement that came out of the meeting in Glasgow basically said, like, we'll talk about it, but it didn't create any sort of requirement for wealthier countries to hand over that money. So I think those were sort of the two biggest things that activists were disappointed by. Well, Delgar, as we draw to a close of our conversation, I, I did want to ask you, uh, what's your sense of optimism among the, the young people you spoke with who uh, were front and center in terms of their activism on climate change in Glasgow, Scotland? Are they optimistic about the future? Not really, to be honest. And I think, you know, when I was interviewing them, yeah, a lot of them sort of expressed a sense of frustration and annoyance that older people keep asking them about optimism and about hope when really they feel like this issue is not being addressed. You know, they don't see a lot of progress. I think the only thing that gives them a little bit of optimism is sort of the community they've been able to find with each other and sort of see just how many young people are getting involved in the climate movement. Um, Otherwise, yeah, optimism is not really the word I would use to describe the mood of the youth climate movement. That was Delgar Erdensena, a reporter with Inside Climate News. Find a link to her articles and related analysis and commentary on the Climate Summit in Glasgow by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In May 2020, as last year's presidential election campaign was getting underway, Louis DeJoy, a Trump campaign megadonor, was appointed as the nation's postmaster general by the U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors, most of whom had been appointed by Mr. Trump. In the months that followed, DeJoy ordered the Postal Service to stop paying carriers and clerks the overtime pay needed to ensure that mail was delivered on time. Then news emerged that DeJoy ordered the decommissioning of 10%, or more than 670 of the Postal Service's costly mail-sorting machines, across the country, as well as the removal, or locking up, of an unknown number of local mailboxes. Many observers viewed these actions as deliberate sabotage of the mail service during the nation's deadly coronavirus pandemic, when Americans were more reliant than ever on the U.S. mail to cast their election ballots. More recently in October, DeJoy began implementing a policy of slowing down mail delivery, primarily of first-class mail, while increasing the cost of postage, in order to cut costs over the next 10 years. Your reporter spoke with Lisa Graves, executive director of True North Research, who talks about her efforts to hold Louis DeJoy accountable for his mismanagement of the U.S. Postal Service, while urging President Biden to replace him as soon as possible to avert more permanent damage. 
Well, you know, I, I like it better when we don't know the name of our postmaster because things are running smoothly. And instead, we have a man who was basically put into this position at the behest of Steve Mnuchin, who was Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary and, you know, made his fortune as the foreclosure king. Steve Mnuchin worked with another board member appointed by Trump, a guy named John Barger, to push Louis DeJoy to the sort of front of the line, even though he had not been recommended by the executive search firms that were hired to help find an excellent candidate to lead our postal service. And um, with the help of all of the men that Donald Trump put on that postal board, they chose Louis DeJoy, who was a major Trump donor, was someone that Trump tapped to help lead the RNC's fundraising efforts, and is someone who has been subject to an investigation by the FBI about whether he pressured his former employees when they were working for him at the private firm to donate to his um, the politicians that he favored and rewarded them with bonuses for doing so. That's the allegation. So here you have a very partisan person who's been put in charge of the Postal Service by a board handpicked uh, by Donald Trump. He chose four investment bankers uh, for that role uh, rather than people who have experience working within the Postal Service, who have experience working as longtime public servants devoted to public interest and protecting public institutions, he put private equity bankers in charge. And uh, one of those guys is Ron Bloom, who's currently the chair. And uh, these men have basically stood by uh, Louis DeJoy as America learned his name last summer when their mail started slowing down dramatically. People were noticing that they weren't getting medicines on time, medicines that they'd relied upon uh, receiving month after month on time, checks and other goods. Uh, farmers had uh, saw chicks uh, dying because they weren't delivered in the time that the Post Service had traditionally been delivering uh, that small livestock. And um, people saw a lot of disruption leading up to the election, right before the election. And courts had to intervene. Lisa, there are questions on social media and all over this country, given the slowdown in the mail and the higher expenses that we've all seen, the question is, when is Joe Biden going to fire Louis DeJoy? The U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors right now is dominated by Donald Trump's appointees, and they're the only ones that could fire Louis DeJoy. Biden did have the opportunity to appoint three members to the board earlier this year, but that's still not enough to outvote the Trump members of that board. Two of those Trump appointees, their terms are up this December, on December 8th. That's Ron Bloom, who I've mentioned, who briefly served in the Obama administration working on the, the Fiat-Chrysler uh, merger. The other guy who, um, whose term is up is John Barger, and he uh, is someone who also hails from this private equity investment background. And um, the two of them, if they were replaced by Biden, there would be an opportunity to get rid of Louis DeJoy. If they are reappointed by Biden this December, there will be no chance for us, the American people, to have a, me a mechanism to get rid of Louis DeJoy, who never should have been hired for this job and who's demonstrably failed time and time again. Uh, last summer, last fall, had to be contained by the courts. And then in the winter, uh, as many people may remember, there was a terrible slowdown again uh, in the mail um, uh, over the winter holidays. And now we've seen, you know, rolling delays on and on throughout this year. And now we're beginning to see these price increases that he has insisted upon, that Louis DeJoy, with the help of Ron Bloom, has insisted upon. And that's just the beginning of a series of price incre increases they plan for 
for both packages and mail, basically on a quarterly or semi-annual basis from here on out, unless they're removed. And so I certainly am calling on President Biden not to reappoint Ron Bloom, not to reappoint John Barger. I'd rather have those those seats vacant than to be staffed with people like them who are so devoted to uh, Louis DeJoy, despite his failings, that they said, in a, according to a press account, that they were both, quote, tickled pink by Louis DeJoy's performance last August and September. I think that's outrageous. We can appoint people to those positions who have a, a record of devotion to public service, devotion to innovations like uh, public banking through the Postal Service and more, and we can diversify that board with people who have uh, far more experience that's valuable and focused on the interests of the American people rather than private equity bankers. That was Lisa Graves, Executive Director of True North Research, who previously served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Policy and Policy Development. Find more commentary on Louis DeJoy's management of the U.S. Postal Service by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. An organization called Libraries Without Borders brings essential information to underserved communities wherever they're found. The group creates spaces that serve as learning centers, fab labs, and incubators of ideas for people in precarious situations. The international organization, founded in 2007 by the French academic Patrick Vey, works in dozens of countries around the world, including in refugee camps. The U.S. branch, launched in 2015, operates in Minnesota, Texas, North Carolina, California, Maryland, Michigan, and Puerto Rico. The group provides underserved populations access to the Internet to connect them with employment, training, educational opportunities, and staying informed about local, national, and international issues that impact their lives. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Aaron Greenberg executive director of the U.S. branch of Libraries Without Borders, who discusses the organization's current work and plans for the future. We help bridge the digital divide. We help bring essential resources that people need. And we bring libraries to places where people are. So laundromats, storm shelters, uh, community spaces uh, that people are comfortable with, that they're already going to. We bring Uh, all the resources of public libraries to those public spaces. Uh, A great example of what we do and have been doing for years uh, is the, what we call the wash and learn initiative. So we have all around the country, basically 24 hour laundromats uh, in often in low income areas. And we have lots of folks who are going to the laundromat week in and week out and waiting for their laundry. And in that, there is a great opportunity for while people are waiting for the cycles to to end, to spend time on the computer, to get familiar with tech, for kids to have time with librarians uh, and have access to 
high quality books and materials. So in places like Detroit and Durham and San Antonio and Oakland and Baltimore over the last few years, we've collaborated with public libraries and community organizations and then with the owners of the laundromats to transform laundromats into public educational centers uh, for folks to access everything they could access at the library, but sometimes 24 hours a day. Libraries close, laundromats don't. So that's a great example of the kind of programs that we do to really meet people where they're at. We ask before we start any project in any city, like where do people spend time? Where do working class, poor, uh, underserved communities spend time and where can we meet them uh, with the kinds of resources that they need, whether to apply for a job, to surf the web, to learn about technology, to check out books from the library or have access to other information like that. Wow, a laundromat seems like the perfect place for that. Do you have any specific plans to expand beyond the cities you're already serving? Absolutely. It's very clear to me that the need is only growing. The digital divide has been laid bare by COVID. And you know everyone remembers the pictures that they saw of kids doing their homework on laptops, using the Wi-Fi outside of Taco Bell or McDonald's, sitting in a parking lot. It's just unacceptable. And we're fortunately in a position where the Biden administration with its first stimulus bill, and then uh, hopefully with the one that will be passed soon, there's incredible resources and real national leadership that we've long needed to invest in communities to make sure that they have access to broadband access to information. And we're one of the organizations that can help do the rollout of that, that can work in cities across the country as we identify the needs that can collaborate effectively with public and private institutions uh, to make sure that people have access to the internet, access to tech, knowledge about how to use those things, and at the end of the day, safe spaces where they can be learning what they need to learn to live decent lives. Aaron Greenberg, what about people who think they already have good information, but are going down the rabbit hole of stolen elections and QAnon and teaching critical race theory in K through 12 schools? Do you try to reach them too, or is that not your thing? I think everything that we do is helping to fight the spread of misinformation. Everything that we do is about giving people access to good information, giving people access, not just internet access, but also training and programming and like access to cultural resources of various kinds. So we don't have programs that are explicitly about propaganda or about misinformation or disinformation, but I think our, our core mission is to give people access to high quality, reliable information that is going to help them navigate the world. So we're, we're already in that fight, but I think as, you, as your question suggests, this is really a crisis in, in our moment for our democracy, for our civic culture, and we see ourselves as, uh, as intervening in a big way. That was Aaron Greenberg, Executive Director with Libraries Without Borders in the U.S. Learn more about the group's work around the world by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WRFI in Ithaca, New York, WDRT in Verroca, Wisconsin, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>